Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's this week's message. about you, I tend to be a logical kind of person. Sometimes a Mr. Spot. If you're somebody like me who prefers that consequences follow actions, you are going, like me, to be frustrated by Hosea chapter 11. Maybe you've seen this kind of scenario in the grocery store. Mom and child are pushing the cart down What is mom's least favorite aisle? The cereal aisle. And the kid picks up a box of sugar-laden cereal because the marketing geniuses, right, have put the cereal at kid's eye level on purpose. Child says, I want this cereal. Mom says, no, you can't have that cereal. Put it back. Child says, no, I want this cereal. Mom says, no, you can't have this cereal. Put it back. Child says, no, I want this cereal. Mom snatches the cereal from the kid's hand, and the kid starts to wail with a volume that can easily be heard in the produce aisle. Mom says, oh, fine. And instead of putting the cereal back on the shelf, she puts it in the cart. The child stops wailing and knows for next time that yelling at the top of his lungs will ensure that he gets his way. Now, somehow the injustice we see in this interaction, uh, we we just hope this never happens to us. And and we understand, right, that mothers have the hardest job in the world. To be fair, Hosea 11 doesn't actually unfold in quite this manner. As we've read in earlier chapters and as we'll see today, there will be punishment that comes as a result of their disobedience. They are going to be carted off into exile in Assyria. There were consequences for their actions of ignoring God and dabbling in pagan religious traditions. But Hosea 11 is going to show us that not only is God just, but God is also loving. He's not going to leave his covenant people to languish in exile forever. And in our look at chapter 11, we're going to see why. This is Hosea chapter 11, the first 11 verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. The first four verses of Hosea 11 illustrate Israel's past. Begins with God's call to his people, his election of a nation by adoption and in love. And that election is called, uh, seen in the word called. The, the love is seen in the word son. Uh, it's an intimate, purposeful term. And this reminds us of the nation's deliverance from Egypt, which gave Israel its identity as the chosen people of God. The Lord called his people out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the promised land of Canaan. Why? Why did God love this people? I mean, Scripture shows us they were no more good than any other nation out there. But God chose them, and he loved them, and he called them out of Egypt. But what happened? Verse 2. 
But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. On the surface, this seems to demonstrate their innate rebellion, their sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve, our first parents. But there's another way to translate that verse, actually. Uh, it, we could say, but the more they called to him, that is, the more the false gods called to him, uh, the false gods of the pagan nations that surrounded them, uh, the more those gods called to Israel, the farther Israel strayed away from the Lord, and they started including pagan rituals in their worship. How does God feel about this? Verses 3 and 4. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck and I myself stooped to feed him. It's like a flashback, right? Parents might have when their child moves away from home. The van is loaded up. The child is ready to depart for a new job or new educational adventures in some other town. And as they embrace their child, the parents remember bringing the child home from the hospital. They remember teaching the child how to ride a bicycle. And when the training wheels came off and the child rode away on his or her own, they remember graduation from kindergarten, graduation from grade six, grade eight, high school. What parent would not well up at the thought of all these memories culminating in the child moving away from home? But in this case, these memories are shadowed with the times they had to visit their child in hospital after a bad round of drugs or an alcohol-induced car accident. God remembers Israel's early days when the people were wholly dependent on him, being fed with manna and quail in the wilderness. And he remembers when the people rebelled, worshipping a, a golden calf, not remembering that the Lord took care of them. They paid no attention to God and took him and his provision for granted. The parents' memories oscillate back to when the child held on to that long rope with the knots in it to so that children in the kindergarten class could wa safely walk down the sidewalk because, beside a busy road uh, and arrive at their field trip safely. I'm going to say more about this in a little bit, but this is more than just Israel's story, right? This is our story. This is Israel's past. Verses 5 to 8 illustrate Israel's present. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. Their prostitution to other gods means the people effectively bit the hand that fed them, and there would be consequences. They would not return to the Lord. They refused. That word refused is used only here in the book of Hosea. But in Jeremiah, oh, that's one of Jeremiah's favorite words. To refer to an obstinate people wasn't just that the people had sinned. It was their steadfast refusal to repent from sin. The consequence of their idolatrous behavior would be exile away from their land, away from all that was familiar to them. And verse 6 describes what this would look like. 
War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. When I was reading this passage before I started studying this week, I, uh, that was the phrase that stuck out for me the most. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. We'll spend some more time on that in a few minutes. We've seen Israel's past and its present, but beginning in verse 8, we begin to see a glimpse of its future. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? And you're thinking, what? Uh, Well, Adma and Zeboim were cities destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. So that gives you a sense of their level of evil. This is back in Genesis 10 and Genesis 19. God remembers his covenant with his people and he asks himself, how can I give up on these people? Even though they've given up on me, clearly, I can't. I can't do it. Those verbs, give up, let go, both suggest giving an enemy full right to do whatever the enemy pleases. Though the people will be exiled, God will not turn his back on them. Their forced move to Assyria will not be a permanent one. He will not completely assimilate, uh, not assimilate. He, He will not completely annihilate his chosen people, nor will he allow them to be completely assimilated in Assyria. So you can see, That God's heart is troubled. He knows the consequences that his people must face, but he has an overwhelming love for them. My heart, it says, is torn within me, and my compassion overflows. Here we're looking at this emotional intensity and anguish that the Lord is feeling. Does that in some way surprise you? that the Lord could feel this emotional intensity about a people who have largely ignored him. Many people, when they think of God, especially God in the Old Testament, they think of that logical consequences for action kind of deity. But here we have an image of God whose heart is torn, whose compassion is kindled within him, just as his anger was kindled within him in chapter 8. He is deeply affected. Do we always think of God as one who is deeply affected? Many people think of God as a harsh judge, but as we're seeing here and as we would see in many places in Scripture, that is not a wholly accurate picture of who God is. The people of Israel will have a future, and what will be the result? This is verse 9. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. There would be a remnant. But this is where it gets strange, right? Because, you know, you hear, I am God and not a mere mortal, and you're thinking God's going to say, Aha, well, see, because I am God, I am going to execute the consequences as intended. But that's not what happens. 
Here we, see, here we see the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, showing compassion on his people, whom he birthed and reared and now is punishing for their actions. That punishment would not be forever. It would not be permanent. He is the Holy One, but he would not destroy. Restoration here is promised, as we see in verse 10. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. The Lord will roar like a lion, and in humble fear, his people will return from exile That roar will be their homecoming call, and they will come back trembling like doves. Those who have turned their backs on God will experience a conversion of a sort. No longer will they flee from God, they will actually flee to God. There is hope. Israel's past conjures memories of a faithful parent. Israel's present conjures images of an obstinate and unrepentant people. And Israel's future conjures hope of a God who relents and a people who respond. Israel's story is our story. When we come to faith, even if we were nurtured in the Christian life by Christian parents, we make our faith our own and we look with gratitude upon both God and those who taught us to walk with the Lord. But for some, not all, there is a phase of life where we turn our backs on God and his punishment comes to us as we live in exile far from the Lord. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we once professed to love. And God never forgets us. Perhaps you're a parent with a child who is in that wandering phase. You presented the child for baptism. You did your level best to raise the child in the admonition of the Lord. You gave the child all the tools necessary to live in relationship with the Lord who gave him or her life. But that child is off in a far country spiritually right now. Do not give up hope. When you presented that child for baptism, God laid a claim on that child and he wants to redeem that child. So keep praying for that child, adult or young person. Keep offering opportunities for Christian fellowship. But it's also possible that this scenario does not describe your child. This scenario might describe you. You may be the one who's off in a far country right now. You might be living in a season of doubt, a time of wondering where the ways of the surrounding culture have taken root in you and you're not walking with the Lord. We keep praying for you. We keep offering opportunities for Christian friendship. The door is open, literally and metaphorically. Come home. There is a God who one day knows you will follow him. That you will come back from exile trembling like a dove. The rest of us are counting on it and praying for you. It's not a sign of weakness to admit you are wrong and return to the Lord. He will welcome you with the same love he had for you when he was nurturing you in days gone by. The book of Hosea started out with the image of the people of Israel as an unfaithful wife. And here in chapter 11, we have Israel portrayed as an unrepentant son. 
But either way, we're dealing with a steadfast husband or parent who has a spouse or a child who wanders spiritually. And it would be fully within God's rights. He's God, after all, to annihilate Israel. In God's economy, it would be the right thing to do. But as we see in this passage, God's compassion overtakes his execution of complete justice. He's God, and he can decide not to exact a fully just punishment. And he's holy. He can fulfill his plan guided by both love and justice. We know that we live with this tension, but maybe it's news to you that God lives with this tension as well. Maybe it's comforting to you as much as it is to me, and as much as it might be frustrating. But understand this. Human sinfulness will not triumph over divine compassion. Some may hear this and think, well, hey, then we can sin all we want. Because God's compassion will cancel it all out. And in one sense, that is exactly what happened in the cross. God's compassion canceled our sin. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 6, we can't just keep on sinning because when we received Christ and his forgiveness exacted for us on the cross, we became new people, people committed to avoiding sin, people committed to living for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that God's compassion triumphs over sinfulness does not negate our need to live righteous lives because as scripture tells us in multiple places, We are to be holy because God is holy. And again, remember that even though God's compassion is greater, the people are still going to experience the consequences for their sin, right? They're going to live in exile for a time. The good news, as Hosea expresses it, is that exile won't be permanent. God's covenant people will not be annihilated. There will be a faithful remnant that will return to their land once more. God's hatred of sin is not greater than his love for them. God is the Holy One who justly punishes sinners and loves them all at the same time. Neither can be eliminated. It's one of those odd tensions that we are called to live with in our journey of faith. Now, if we were reading this passage after Christmas, you might have noticed some familiar words. Back in verse 1, the Lord said, I called my son out of Egypt. And this is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, when Matthew depicts the flight into Egypt, where Joseph and Mary and Jesus leave Judea for safety in Egypt, while King Herod deals with his issues, uh, because these uh, wise guys from the east came to tell him that there was a newborn king. And so Herod went out and was doing all kinds of damage to the little boys. The Lord was sent to Egypt with his parents. And then Hosea gets quoted, I called my son out of Egypt. It was a sign of God's covenant love. Likewise, here in Hosea, we have signs of God's covenant love. How do we deal with this decidedly unspock-like, illogical tension between condemnation and love? How does God solve the difficulty of refusing to condemn sinners while remaining holy? Well, he does it in the death of Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.26 that God is both just and fair. He is just in that he requires that a penalty be paid for sin, and he himself provides the sacrifice, just as in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Jesus has paid the price for our sin on the cross. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Through him the claims of justice which are against my soul are all met. God loves the child Israel because of the child Christ. Herman Veldkamp said Christ was already in Israel while Israel was still in Egypt. Indeed, the exodus took place because of Jesus. And you might be scratching your head thinking, what kind of an anachronism has he created here? After all, Jesus was born more than 700 years after the time of Hosea, and the Exodus was a long time before that. But let's not forget that Jesus was fully God and fully human, and was fully God long before he exited Mary's womb. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. And that's not bad grammar on the part of the translators, right? This is Jesus saying, I am, I am. He is saying he is one with the Lord God. The second person of the Trinity. He existed in eternity. He hovered over the waters of creation. He guided the Israelites out of Egypt. He gave inspiration to the prophets, including Hosea. And as strange as it sounds, God's deep compassion, which caused him not to annihilate the rebellious people of the northern kingdom of Israel, came through the Lord Jesus Christ. He had not yet been born. He'd not yet taught a word to his disciples. He'd never been nailed to the cross by that time. He hadn't risen from the dead. He hadn't ascended into heaven. This Jesus of whom and to whom we sing and worship and praise is why God can remain holy while refusing to utterly condemn sinners, including those who would soon hive off into exile in Assyria. In other words, don't miss this. Not only did God love Israel, God loved himself too much to destroy Israel completely. This is not just Israel's story. This is our story too. God knows our past. He knows the nurturing we experienced. He knows the faith we've had. He knows our present. He knows the struggles we face, the faith we hold so dearly or so weakly. And God knows our future. He knows that we will come trembling like doves in response to his lion roar. So let me revisit that section that stood out to me so clearly in verse 7. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Time for a gut check. Are your words about God and your relationship with God in step with each other? Are you calling God the Most High and honoring him appropriately? One of my YouTube rabbit holes lately has been watching uh, court hearings from a a circuit court in Bear County, Texas, where a no-nonsense, compassionate judge named Stephanie Boyd deals with people's bond requests. It's very entertaining. 
One case I watched recently, the defendant testified that he had found God in jail and was living a better life as a result, and he should be granted probation. Well, the judge then quizzed him on his Bible knowledge, something that you probably wouldn't hear from the bench in too many places outside the U.S. South. She mentioned to the defendant that she sees all kinds of people coming before her claiming to have a relationship with God, but it doesn't always turn out to be real. We may not stand before a flesh and blood judge looking for probation, but the time will come when we stand before the judge of all things looking for mercy, and he will know all about our relationship with him. And the only way we'll get through is with Jesus on our side. He is the judge, he is the jury, he is the prosecutor, but he is also the defense attorney. When we call on him in faith, It is because of what he has done for us in paying the price for our sins that we will experience the greatest compassion of God and be granted freedom from sin and eternal life. People in Hosea's time, they didn't know Jesus, but Jesus knew them. And he knows you and he knows me. Do we know him? Do we live in relationship with him? It is through him the most high and our honor of him that we will experience the compassion of God. Whatever we may think about human nature, said Morgan, God thought it was worth dying for. That's good news for you and me today. Take it to heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of your people in Hosea. Thank you that we can learn from negative examples. Thank you that this prophet teaches us more about your love than anyone else in Scripture except the Lord Jesus himself. We pray that we will call you the Most High, And that we will honor you. We pray for those who are wandering off in a far country in these days. Forgetting the covenant they made with you. Draw them back to yourself, Lord. Let your compassionate love overcome your justice. So that those who have strayed from you will hear your call to return. We are prone to wander, Lord prone to leave the God we love. But we pray that you will take the love we have to offer and seal it for the time when we will stand before you in judgment, finding ourselves by faith as the recipients of a compassion that goes beyond anything we can ask or imagine, all because of Jesus, who died and rose again for us. Amen. You've been wandering. I want to invite you to come back. Come and live authentically for the Lord, serving and honoring only Him. If you're in that position today, let me know through the connection card at stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect so I can pray for you. Use that card and I'll be in touch. Or maybe you have a child who has wandered and you're wondering if the covenant you made with God will be fulfilled. Likewise, use that card 
Let me know so I can pray, young or old. Maybe you've been faithful the whole time, like the older brother in the story of the lost son. Let me encourage you to continue to be faithful so that you can be a model and an encouragement to others who may be struggling. I'd like to pray for you, too, so your faith remains strong in challenging times. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, and if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.